Welcome to Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life, featuring the expository story preaching of Dr. John Katzian. Baldhead Bible Podcast is committed to keeping our show free to the public. However, as with everything, there are expenses involved, so if you would like to contribute, head on over to patreon.com. That's patreon.com forward slash baldhead Bible. And there you can become a supporting member for as low as $1 a month. While there, please check out some of the bonus material available only to our BHBP supporters. And some of that material includes Bible study guides to help you use the podcast to minister to your children, to minister in a Sunday school class, and to have some quality family devotions. Joseph, father of Jesus, was probably working hard in his shop. You know, maybe he's fixing the chair of his neighbor down the road, or maybe he was getting his tools together to go work at the house he was building with some other laborers, or or maybe it was at the end of the day when all of this happened, you know, and he was putting all his tools away when they showed up. I imagine... His wife, Mary, came running in, holding their baby. Joseph, Joseph, you have to come see our visitors. Joseph, come see. It's incredible. So Joseph, I think, would have dropped everything and followed Mary back to the house. And I imagine as he turned the corner, what he saw next. It was amazing. It would have just made his jaw drop open and awe. He would have seen lots of men Soldiers, horses, and official-looking people crowded into and around his house. He probably had to work his way through the crowd until he and Mary were standing in their living room, and, and standing before him were these official-looking men. They probably had some type of turban on and various chains and seals around their neck and on their tunics signifying, We are official! There might have been three of them, or maybe more, we don't know, but Joseph would have noticed that these men were not Jews, they were foreign. He would have noticed their foreign dress and their foreign accents as they began to talk, and then he would have seen them bow. First the officials at the front, and then slowly all of the men moving backwards and outside of the house. They all would have bowed and knelt, soldier after soldier, kneeling and removing their hat. But they weren't kneeling for Joseph. They weren't kneeling in honor of Mary. No, they were kneeling at the little baby, the little toddler who had just wobbled into the room. They were bowing in honor of his oldest son. They were kneeling for Jesus. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard of the three wise men, right? The three men who came from the east to worship Jesus. This story is told in the book of Matthew, and it's important for Matthew to include it, and it's important for us as Christians to not forget it, because it does one major thing. 
It reminds us that the coming Jesus will inherit the throne of David and will be the king who will fulfill the Davidic covenant. Jesus is king. That's what Matthew is trying to tell his readers. Jesus is king. He inherits the throne of David. See, earlier, way earlier, God had promised to King David that his throne would last forever and that someday a ruler would sit on his throne and this ruler would have no end and he would rule over the nations in justice and peace. This was a promise made to David by God and and a promise that could not be broken ever and a promise that every good Jew was expecting to see fulfilled. And so Matthew, in telling the story of Jesus, wants his Jewish audience to understand that Jesus is that king. He is the fulfillment of the promise of the Davidic covenant. And when Jesus returns, he will return as a king. Got to remember that. That's the point of the story right here in Matthew. Jesus is king. Well, back to the story. Joseph and Mary see these men bowing before their son Jesus. Now, Jesus is between the ages of one and two at this time, and they're living in a small hut in the area around, or maybe even in the town of Bethlehem. Joseph is plying his craft of carpentry, and Mary is busy being a housewife and mother. She might even just have had her second child by now, or maybe they still only had one, Jesus, and one was on the way. I don't know. Either way, we do know that Jesus later on has brothers, but at this point in Jesus' life, when the wise men showed up, what we find is Joseph and Mary and little baby Jesus, they're just trying to make a life of it right there in Bethlehem. We know a couple things about their lives at this point. They weren't rich. Now, now we know this because right after Jesus was born, in fact, 40 days after Jesus was born, on the 40th day, a good Jewish woman is supposed to go up to the temple and offer a sacrifice as a sin offering for her uncleanness. That's according to the law. Well, Joseph and Mary went to do this sin offering. Now, when you get up there to give your offering, if you're rich or have enough money, you usually offer a lamb as a sacrifice, right? But if you were poor, you could bring two doves or two pigeons. And according to Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, that is the sacrifice that Joseph and Mary gave. They went the poor person's route. They couldn't afford the lamb. They weren't rich. Between the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the wise men, I don't think they got any richer. Kids cost money, and now Joseph has another mouth to feed, besides his and Mary's. And I'm sure he's happy to do it, but life just keeps grinding on. You have the miracle of his birth, and the shepherds coming to tell you all these wonderful things, and you hear about these angels announcing his birth, and this is a wonderful moment, but in the preceding years before the wise men showed up, right? Joseph goes back to work. Mother goes, Mary goes back to being a mother and setting up house. You know, I wonder what was it like to raise the son of God? You know, was he colicky? Did he cry a lot? You know, was Satan aware and did he try his best to kill Jesus? Later on, Satan tries to do that very thing through an evil, insane ruler named Herod. But did Satan try to kill Jesus on a regular basis? 
I wonder. Jesus was the perfect baby, right? I mean, he never sinned. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was the sinless, perfect sacrifice. So what does that look like? I think raising Jesus must have been a delight. It must have been. But he still peed and pooped and cried and threw up. And he still did normal baby things that cost money, that cost time, that are inconvenient. And and I wonder if during that time Joseph and Mary ever began to doubt. You know, Jesus is just very human. And I wonder if Joseph ever thought to himself, in particular Joseph, was that... Was that dream I had real? Was it really the angel of the Lord talking to me in the dream? Was that from God or was it just really bad hummus the day before or a really bad lamb? I don't know. And and was the angel of the Lord talking to me? Is that true? But then I think anytime he doubted, Mary told him, hey, I talked to Gabriel. I talked to an angel. He stood in my room or wherever she talked to him. I talked to an angel. No, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. So life goes on for Joseph and Mary, right? Between the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the wise men. The daily grind just goes right on grinding. They had to eat. There were meals to prepare. They had to pay for food. There was money to be made. There were taxes to be paid to the oppressive Romans. So I imagine Joseph took all the work he could just to survive. Life was hard for a first century Jew. You were living in a region given to wars and invasions. You were being oppressed by the rich Romans who could at any time turn ugly on you and kill you and your kinsmen, you know, and your relatives and your neighbors. So you had to keep quiet and you had to avoid the Romans. And man, that's a lot of pressure. Infant mortality rate during this time was very high. Some estimates say one quarter of infants died in their first year of life during this time. And and also another estimate I read said around half of all children died before they reached the end of puberty. So that means 50% of children would die before the ages of 9 or 10 or 11. That's so sad. But then things still cost money. I did some research here. Joseph, as a carpenter, probably made that he probably made about two denarii a day. Now, a denarii, one denarius, is a day's wages. So he got two denarius for being a carpenter. Hey, which isn't bad, but still not a lot. Because look at how much stuff cost at your local market in the days of Jesus. I found some, some, some money here, or I found some information, some data here that shows that for one modius of barley, now a modius is basically a measure of dry good. People would sell it in packs of one modius, two modius, and one modius was essentially 34 cups. So 34 cups of barley at the market in Joseph's day, 34 cups of barley cost just over one day's wages. And that was the cheapest stuff. Wheat, two days wages. Lentils, two days wages. Salt, two days wages. Now, a cup of barley today is about 650 calories, I found out. 
So if you wanted about 2,000 calories, that's the average diet to live on so you don't starve, right? About 2,000 calories a day, you're going to want two to three cups of just barley, and that stuff's expensive, just over one day's wages. Well, if you wanted something else like meat or olive oil, right? Well, olive oil costs you almost one day's wages. And just under one pound of lamb or goat or fish, guess what? That costs you half a day's wages. And shoes could cost a day labor almost three days of work. And if you wanted something super, super fancy like silk, man, that costs you 480 days worth of work to buy one garment made out of silk. Well, things are expensive. You got the oppressive Romans. Infant mortality is high. Well, not only that, the average lifespan for the average Jewish person was 55. 55 years. You were lucky if you lived to the age of 55. You were considered old. So you got the physicalness of just existing and paying for things. And like I said, behind all of that, I wonder how much Satan is attacking you and your family. Now that Satan knew the Son of God had been born and where he was living, I wonder how much time he spent trying to take Jesus out. You know, did Joseph's carts always have near-fatal crashes? Or with Jesus on board? Or, or did his house always nearly burn down? Or, or did Satan send bacteria after bacteria to try to get Jesus sick, to take him out that way? Man, I just think it would have been interesting to live that life for Joseph and Mary on that daily grind. It must not have been easy raising the Son of God. But then you have moments like this. Moments of sheer wonder when soldiers and officials are bowing before your little son Jesus. And I think these moments of sheer wonder and majesty and beauty and spiritual transcendence would have, would have just punctuated the, the daily grind of their life and it would have reminded Joseph and Mary what their life was all about. And I think those moments Mary would treasure in her heart and Joseph would be reminded once again that his son was special. His son was God. And I think that's the way life is in many ways for us today, right? The daily trudges of life punctuated by those moments of sheer spiritual beauty and majesty. We go to work, we go to school, we make money to live. We then spend that money to buy the stuff we need to live. We get sick, we get aches and pains, we get heartaches and setbacks along the way. And sometimes I think in the middle of all that, at least I do, I wonder, is all this true? Or is this it? Is this what life's about? Work followed by death. But then... But then you have those transcendent moments when it all makes sense, right? When you realize you are living for another country, as C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis wrote, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it go snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. End quote. 
So here we are. Back to the story, right? Here are Joseph and Mary, and in front of them are these foreign dignitaries standing in their living room. Now, the thing is, we don't know how many there were there, right? Tradition says there were three. But there could have been six, twelve, twenty, or more for all we know. We do know these men were called Magi and had come from the East, which means these men were powerful court officials who had come from the country or the area of Persia and probably specifically from the city of Babylon. And these men were of a priestly class to the Babylonians. They were called the Magi. So the Jews had the Levites who they got all their priests from. And well, the Babylonians got all their priests from a group called the Magi. These were men trained in the occult, trained in reading tea leaves and sheep guts. And most importantly for our story, they were trained with reading the stars. They did these things to try to predict the future for their master, the king of Babylon or the king of Persia or whoever they happened to be serving. Well, one day, years ago, the Magis were ruled by one brilliant Magi. A magi smarter and more powerful than all of them. And his name? His name was Daniel. Now, Daniel was a Jewish man who had been taken captive by the Babylonians. But Daniel was a man who loved Yahweh and feared him and him alone and followed and was loyal only to the worship of Yahweh. So when he found himself outside of Israel and in Babylon, Daniel never quit worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. Well, because of that, Daniel was blessed by God blessed. And eventually Daniel ends up the chief of the Magi. And it was during that time that I think the Magi began to learn of the Jewish faith and of a coming Messiah who would change the world. I think Daniel taught them prophecy from the Jewish Bible and showed them prophecy after prophecy. And I think some of those magi converted and became true followers of Yahweh. So by the time that Jesus' birth came, these magi were aware that a coming Messiah was about to arrive. Now, not all the Magi were followers of Yahweh, right? There were Magi who continued to worship and follow the pantheon of gods that the Babylonians worshipped. But I think in the middle of all that, there were those who began to worship Yahweh, and they passed that worship down to other Magi priests. In fact, there's a comment by the Jewish philosopher Philo, who lived in the time of Christ and the apostles. He says there was a school of Magi in Babylon known as the Eastern School. The Eastern School. And this Eastern School was filled with men of learning and great character, Philo says, who were filled with wisdom, who were filled with wisdom from the true God. I think there was Yahweh worship in the middle of Babylon, and it was passed down from the Eastern School of the Magi Priest to another member of the Eastern School of the Magi Priest until years after Daniel's death, there were a group of Magi who saw something unique in the skies. Something that told them there's going to be a a marvelous, wonderful birth. Something that matched the teaching of their founder, Daniel, who wrote down from a vision given to him by the Most High that talked about 
70 weeks. And one of the things that was going to happen during those 70 weeks was the coming of the Messiah. And so ever since the decree of King Darius to rebuild Jerusalem, which they knew kicked off those 70 prophetic weeks of Daniel, these magi were expecting something ever since 444 B.C. They were expecting the revelation of the Messiah. And then they saw it. A unique star in the sky. And then they would have thought of the prophecy in Numbers 24 about a star that would rise out of the tribe of Judah. So maybe this star that they saw, this unique star in the sky, maybe this star connecting it all together is signifying that the Messiah is here. And this group of devoted followers of Yahweh from afar not in Israel, right? In Babylon area, in, in Iraq, Iran, this group of devoted Yahweh worshipers decided to go check this star out. So they followed that star. They would have followed it across deserts, through towns and villages, until that star took them to the town of Jerusalem itself. Now, they would have needed a large caravan of camels and horses with all their provisions, and, and they probably would have traveled with an army of soldiers to help protect them. So it did not go unnoticed when their party arrived in Jerusalem. Plus, I think they wanted to share the good news. The Messiah is born. So they asked for an audience with the current king of the Jews, Herod the Great. So they walk into Herod's palace and they told him what their trip was all about. And it says there in Matthew 2, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Yes, where is he? I think that's what Herod would have done. I think Herod would have coughed up his wine, his booze, his chicken pot pie, whatever he was drinking or eating. A king? A king? A king here in Jerusalem? This is my kingdom. I, I'm literally called the king of the Jews. Herod, it says, became angry and became deeply disturbed. The Greek word for deeply disturbed there literally means agitated, like in a washing machine, you know, being shook side to side, round and round. He is totally upset, but he's a master liar. And so he chooses to hide his fear. And instead, Herod acts all excited for these magi. A king? A king! A king of the Jewish people being born and raised here in Israel? How marvelous! Let, let me help you find the king. And so he calls the scribes and religious leaders to show up. And there the priests showed that from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, it says there that a king will be born in the city of Bethlehem. There it is, Bethlehem. Hey, hey, go check it out. This king's probably in Bethlehem. And as they're leaving, Herod yells out, hey, 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 and if you find the baby, come back and let me know so I can come and worship him as well. Big fat liar, right? Well, Bethlehem is about five miles away from Jerusalem, so the Magi and all their entourage of camels and horses and soldiers, they all set out to find the king in Bethlehem. The cool thing is, is they weren't just. The cool thing is, they weren't left to just hunt around every outhouse, chicken house, 
play house, house, house in Bethlehem to try to find him. No, no, no. God gave them that star. The same star they'd been following all across the east was now even closer. And the star led them specifically to Bethlehem. Now, what did the star look like the moment it moved from the heavens and began to move into the sky above Bethlehem? I think the star, whatever it was, had to have been able to have been seen during the day because I doubt the Magi left Jerusalem at night to get to Bethlehem. And what did this star look like that was bright enough to be seen during the day and then small enough that it could hover above the place where Jesus was? I mean, what type of star is that? All I can say is I have no clue. None. No idea. A star that can be seen in the terrestrial heavens and then move to the blue sky above and then move directly over a house showing the people where Jesus was? That is a star that can only be made by God. Now, all stars are created by God, I know, but this was some type of miraculous star, and this is a star that had to have been more than what we consider a star today. Some people think it was a manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God, and I tend to lean in that direction, but I have no clue. This is an amazing, miraculous star. So here are the Magi with their entourage, I imagine, of a hundred or more men and soldiers all crowded into and around Jesus' house, and then they present their gifts. Gold frankincense and myrrh and these were traditional gifts that people would give back in that day when celebrating the birth of royalty these gifts were given to honor jesus as a king notice they weren't given to mary they weren't given to joseph no they were given to jesus as king the thing is these weren't cheap gifts we all know how expensive gold is right gold is still something that's highly treasured well, frankincense back in Jesus' day was also highly treasured. People would use frankincense oil for, for bathing and renew moisture after taking a bath, but they would also use it in their worship of their gods to, 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 to take as incense. They would burn it and would take their prayers up to heaven. People used frankincense all the way back 3,000 years earlier during the time of the Egyptians when they opened the King Tutankhamun's tomb, it says that the air was full of the fragrance of frankincense. They could still smell it. People would use it to help themselves with their respiratory. The Chinese would use it to help their breathing. People would use it for skin moisture, but they would also use it in religious importance at holy sites to take their prayer up to God. Frankincense was important. And you know what? It was worth back in Jesus's day using our money about $500 a pound. Well, myrrh, Myrrh is even more expensive because myrrh was incredibly rare. Arab men would drink myrrh mixed with fragrant liquids to try to cure baldness. Now, that would ruin my podcast. We're not going to do that. But in India, the resin of myrrh was used to cure obesity. And the Chinese used myrrh and mixed it with breast milk to cure diaper rash. Guess what, though? Frankincense was $500 per pound. Myrrh was even more rare. Guess how much that was worth? $4,000 per pound of myrrh. This is immense, right? 
This is expensive. These magi are now giving gifts of gold, which is expensive. Myrrh, which could be $4,000 a pound. Frankincense. These gifts were given to Jesus. Again, these were traditional gifts that would have been given to royalty. But I also wonder if these gifts were symbolic. I think gold symbolized the kingship, the kingliness of Jesus, the coming king, the fact that he is king. Frankincense to symbolize that he's God, right? Because frankincense is used as an incense in worship to a deity. They're worshiping Jesus as a god. And then myrrh. They would use myrrh in burial rituals. And many people see myrrh as symbolic of Jesus' coming death. But ultimately, these gifts were given by the Magi to show their loyalty to this king and to honor Jesus as a king. What a day. What a night. What what a marvelous event to encourage Joseph and Mary as they raise the Son of God. What a spiritually transcendent moment. But then the dreams came. And the dreams would be a good reminder of the danger that Jesus was in as a fragile baby. The first dreams came to the Magi where God revealed the evilness of Herod and they needed to leave and not go back to Jerusalem. And so they went home via another route. Then there was another dream for Joseph. And again, it involved an angel of the Lord who told him to get up, move quickly, and get out and flee with his family to Egypt because Herod is coming to kill Jesus. And if they don't move, Jesus is in danger of being killed. So Joseph gets up, and guess what? I wonder with the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. I mean, this is newfound wealth for Joseph and Mary, but now they've got to get up and flee to Egypt. Did God give them just enough money to get all the stuff they needed to flee to Egypt and to live there for one, two, three years, and then to pay for a trip back. And by the time they got back, all that money was used up. I could see God saying, you know what? I'm going to provide your need. I'm not going to give you more than you need. I'm not going to give you less than you need. I'm going to give you all the money you need to flee to Egypt, to live there for two to three years, and then to come back. I'm going to give you all the money you need to do to do that. I'm going to give you all the money you need to do that. Just trust me. I can imagine God doing that. But I also wonder, maybe Joseph kept this money wisely, used it throughout the life of Jesus and his own life to take care of his family? I don't know, but I just think it's beautiful how God provides for his family, how God provided for his son to get him out, to flee to Egypt. And so they go and they flee to Egypt. They get out of Dodge. Sadly, to show the threat that Jesus was under, Herod's soldiers arrived not much later. And they killed every boy two years old or younger in Bethlehem and the regions around Bethlehem. You know, we have the high gifts of kings and honoring Jesus as king and all the wonderful and beautiful and marvelous, miraculousness of that moment. Followed by the tragedy of the slaughter of the innocents. 
baby boys needlessly killed because of the insanity of Herod and the evil desires of Satan. Well, later on, the book of Matthew says Joseph comes back. And he has two more dreams where the angel of the Lord shows up and tells him in a dream to get up. Herod's dead. Leave Egypt. Head back to Israel. The danger's past. And then once he's in Israel, he has another dream, the book of Matthew says, where the angel of the Lord says, hey, stop. Don't go back to Bethlehem. I need you to move over to this region called Galilee, and I need you to live in a town called Nazareth. Much safer. So that's where Jesus grows up. And that's where the story of Jesus' childhood ends for the book of Matthew. What a story. What an adventure. But also what a normal life, right? What a struggle at times. Joseph and Mary are doing their best to raise the Son of God. They work, eat, live, all the time doing their best to give their children the best life that they can. But then they are reminded at moments of who their child is. In moments like this, in grand, marvelous, miraculous moments that take their breath away. But then they're quickly brought down to earth when the evilness of life seeps in, right? when they see the danger that Jesus is in, when they have to drop everything and run for their lives, and, and then to hear that massacre. That must have broken their hearts when they heard what had happened to the children in that area. Then I think they looked down at this little child, this little child named Jesus. They would remind themselves he is king. And I wonder if they would have read the prophecies from Daniel and Isaiah about the Messiah and the coming kingdom of peace that he will bring. And I wonder as they worked and toiled away and dealt with the miseries that life can bring, that they also rejoiced in their little king and they looked into the future with a smile on their faces because they knew their little king would one day make it all right. And I pray we will live down here that same way. Jesus is king and will one day rule and reign over a kingdom of peace and prosperity. That if you know the Lord is your savior, if you've asked him to save you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you put your faith and trust and believing loyalty in Jesus, guess what? You're going to be a part of that kingdom. You're going to rule and reign with Jesus, and you're going to be a part of that kingdom of peace and prosperity that will have no end. What a wonderful Savior, and what a wonderful story. Thank you for listening to Baldhead Bible Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can comment on our Facebook page or email us at baldheadbible at gmail.com. If you would like to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash baldheadbible. Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life. New episodes added every week.